seeing that I was having that impact and I was building that credibility for myself, no matter the age and no matter also my gender, I was in the Middle East, so it wasn't the easiest of things, is something that gave me that self-confidence to think that I can be the one that makes a difference. So there is the difference and the impact, and then there is the confidence that you can make a difference. And why not in that case? Why not think big? Because finally, it's not about me and my profile. It's really about how we need to fix the world we live in. And I think we need more people that have a certain set of values and certain set of skills to bring them to the table and not you know, shift to, to profit focused or very self-interest focused uh, type of politics or jobs. Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we celebrated episode 100 with the discussion on authenticity, how it relates to professional performance, and then I left you with a little exercise. Today, we start the journey to 200 with a fabulous young leader. Gaia van der Resch was nominated to the Forbes 30 Under 30 for Law and Policy a few years ago, and she's keeping that promise. Right now, she's the managing director of 3.0, an organization that, as the name implies, is working to make the world 3.0, which means zero exclusion, zero carbon, and zero poverty. It is a very ambitious goal, and that makes it a very good fit for Gaia. In our conversation, she talked about her perspective and understanding of leadership and how it evolved. She says that being a leader was not something that she thought about when she was a high school or college student. But as she was quickly given more and more responsibility and began roles in her career, she started to understand that she was a leader. And with that, she realized that she could aim for bigger goals. She also talked about how her perspective of leading matured as she progressed in her career and what is the most significant change that she made. Finally, Gaia talked about the importance of her own mission. From an early age, she was driven to right the wrongs in any situation. This is a personal mission that led her to start her own career doing field work on a number of different initiatives. But at some point, she realized that while it is important to do the work in the field, in order to generate true systemic change, she needed to work at the policymaking level. That realization brought her to get more education and become also a thinker and a writer, so she fully rounded her experience. And now she's in a point in her career where she can bridge both sides. There's a lot to learn from this episode. Enjoy. Let's start this conversation the same way I ask all my guests. Um, why don't you introduce yourself, Gaia, to my listeners, a little bit of your story, what you're doing now and how you got here. And you can take as little or as much time as you want. Well, I'm Italian, so the tendency will be to be longer rather than shorter. So please cut me off if needed. I'm half Italian, half Dutch. I grew up, though, in Italy. That's why I also have, of course, an Italian accent in English. I grew up in a tiny village in Italy, uh, which I left when I was 20 to study international relations. I really wanted to explore the world, to understand how I could contribute uh, to changing things. I was very uh, already somehow aware of political dynamics or 
of uh, the environment of uh, poverty because I traveled a lot because of my family history and and I wanted to somehow find my way into having an impact on a world so I left uh, my little village when I was 1920 to study first in Rome then in Berlin then in Paris and started my career actually in 2011 by moving to the Middle East in the middle of or at least at the beginning of the Syria war to work as a aid worker as a humanitarian aid worker so I had a first part of my career which lasted seven eight years which were really working in context of crisis an emergency crisis uh, or natural disaster type of context which allowed me to travel the world I went in so many different countries across sub-Saharan Africa I was in Haiti after the hurricane I was in in Asian uh, countries that had uh, different sets of problems from refugees and conflict to uh, to natural disasters I was many years four years uh, fully focused on the Middle East on Iraq and Syria another refugee crisis that I uh, was following uh, that, that that was yeah emerging from from that situation from that war and it was a job that allowed me to grow a lot I really had a very very quick career actually I started as everybody as an intern in 2011 but I was by age 27 I was managing over a thousand people of course indirectly you never manage a thousand people directly but I already had a leadership role quite young because I could manage teams keep calm in the midst of chaos and in the midst of many people panicking and keep my eyes on the strategy and what needed to be done on motivating the team. So I had a very quick career, I would say, uh, in terms of actual leadership and actual managerial type of positions. Uh, but it was a job also that allowed me to understand what was really important to me, right? And to really feel I was having an impact on the world. But also, of course, then to understand the shortcomings because any system, even the best job or the job that seems to have most impact in the world has its shortcomings. And so after seven, eight years working within the aid sector, I started feeling that that you're somehow a bit of a nurse, that you're, of course, trying to help people uh, that need help and that are in, in situations where they shouldn't be in to start with because it's man-made disasters uh, most case and, and we're still making all these disasters but on the other hand you can never fix the reasons behind it right you're like a nurse that puts a plaster and then I don't know you hope the wound doesn't open again but you can't do anything to actually fix the wound to start with and so I decided I wanted to actually start exploring a bit of, of a career shift and look more at policy and politics that is the underlying reasons why we are uh, you know in this state of multi-crisis we're in within our world um, so I took time off uh, I went back to study to really take time to reflect to learn to to I don't know a bit question my own career my own thinking and how I wanted to reposition and I did a second master's so that was an MPA a master's in public administration at the Kennedy School in Boston. And during that two years, I really started to a bit refocus what I wanted to do. So I started writing. It's something I had never done before, but it just came very naturally as a way of expressing my opinion on things and not only playing the nurse role, but also playing, okay, I want to actually input in the discussions and the debates of why we are getting where we are. Why is our world so polarized? Why do we have so many crises going on? How is it that we can fix them? So I started writing for newspapers, both in the US, but especially for newspapers in Italy, 
and and building a little bit my own voice beyond you know my capacity to have an impact to be an efficient manager I wanted to build my own voice as Gaia someone that has something to say and to contribute to find solutions I also wrote my first book that was published in Italy on polarization in Italy and why we're so polarized and why we are so stuck as a country and we don't manage to move uh, very quickly as other countries do in terms of you know uh, development in terms of rights in terms of many different aspects uh, that we're suffering in Italy and and then I decided to actually return to Italy after many many years abroad because I wanted to try and have an impact also on my home country uh, you know you you live everywhere in the world and then you look back and in my case my brother was out of a job for three years after graduating uh, as many other young people in Italy that couldn't find a job my aunties have probably the minimum minimal wage so I really felt there was a crisis ongoing in Italy and I wanted to go back and help and I decided with with uh, COVID to move back to Italy. And I I found a job which was difficult uh, to find a job after you've had an international career. Found a job with the G20 because Italy had the presidency of the G20 and I was the G20 Sherpa for gender equality which was a very interesting moment of my life because it's when I started realizing that a lot of the things that lived on my skin as a woman, as a manager, as maybe maybe or maybe not a leader yet at that point, were actually linked to my gender. I thought it was just episodes that happened to me while I understood all of a sudden that it was a more systemic problem, not only my problem. And it was a very interesting, of course, to be able to, to lead the policies and the type of change that we can advance in terms of gender equality from a G20 perspective. And after that position, I decided to also write a book, which is coming out in a few months about leadership and not only about how we should should and can get women around the table, but also how we change what leadership means once we are at the table. And I think that's also why I was intrigued by your podcast, because this link with authenticity and this link with what leadership actually looks like is something I'm also thinking about. And uh, I also now, my current position after the G20, I'm also myself leading an organization which is called 3.0. It's an international foundation and it stands for zero exclusion, zero carbon, zero poverty. And we're trying to create a 3.0 world where we don't only work on one topic in a bit of a silo approach, which we all love uh, in our companies and in our organizations, but try really to work across different topics. Um, so we have over 9,000 staff in uh, 45 countries that work really on the ground to build this vision of a 3.0 world. And, uh, and it's a new position that I'm still learning and uh, trying to make my I'm the managing director of it. I started just now seven, eight months ago, but it's a position which I think can have a lot of impact, both from the policy perspective and from the field type of work. So I found a good niche where to position myself somehow after my career shift. That's fabulous. So you said a lot of really interesting things. I want to start with something you mentioned a little while ago, which is you find yourself uh, very young, leading a very large effort and group of people. When did you start consciously thinking about the type of leader that you wanted to be? So first, I think there is maybe a question even before, like at what point did I understand I was a leader? Yeah, let's start from there. 
when I was in school or when I was studying, I never had the super ambitious perspective or a super ambitious goal of where I was going to go, what I was going to do. Uh, I never thought, oh, one day I want to be, I don't know, the prime minister of my country. Now I would actually say so. Now now I'm way more ambitious than I would have ever been when I was in high school or when I was in university. And even when I started my job, I just worked and I did things and I very naturally, I think I was a point of reference for people, but I never thought of myself as someone that had that potential or that leadership or even that role. I started understanding that I had it once other people started seeing it, my bosses, and they started giving me more responsibilities and saying, okay, now you manage five people, now you manage 10 people, now you manage 30, now you manage the whole Middle East region. And so I started understanding that I had that potential and that capacity and that the capacities and the skills that to me came very natural were leadership skills. Only once others started seeing it and telling me, okay, you can do it, you can manage, we trust you, run with it, right? So that was already a first step that took for me several years to actually understand, okay, what for me is so natural, which means, I don't know, organizing things, trying to be inspiring, trying to be supportive to others, trying to fix problems and think of solutions and not over-focus on the problem is actually skills that are what leadership should be or how leadership is often seen, right? And so that was the very first an important step in in my self-perception, which gave me first boost and a first, I don't know, understanding of also my character somehow, right? Because I had never tested it in that direction. I was never, I don't know, the president of the school or things like that. Were there any specific moments? Is there an episode that comes to mind when you started realizing, oh, you know, maybe I'm more of a leader than I think, and maybe that's something that I want? I have this memory that just came to mind as you asked, which is a moment I was like an officer level and there was another officer coming in. And I was a bit confused because I was like with the same exact job title. And I was a little confused. I was like, okay, why do they want to replace me? Or, you know, why is this new officer coming in with the same job title when it's not that much work, right? So I was a little confused. And I remember the day he arrives, he was a guy more or less my age. I I take him aside in a meeting room and I start briefing him, right? I'm like, okay, what can I do? I guess I can brief him and start splitting the work. And I did it in a very, not, not even in, not in a strategic way. I just thought, okay, what do I do? He's coming in. He doesn't know the work. I'll take him, I'll brief him on, on what we're doing, what we're working and start dividing the priorities and dividing the roles between us because I prefer to be the one defining it rather than having others defining it for me. And I sit with him in this meeting room in Amman, in Jordan, which had glasses all around. And we were sitting there with all my printed dossier and papers, and I was showing him. And then the big boss comes by, and he is like, Gaia, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm briefing him on his job. And he looks at me, and he says, you've just been promoted. You're, you're his new manager. And it was a very interesting moment, because I just did something that to me was logical to to bring someone on board but also to define my work and not only get it defined by others and the person on the outside seeing it that I was doing it in a very constructive way I wasn't doing it in a threatening way for anyone but at the same time I was 
somehow defining the strategy that we could both follow and defining the vision that we could follow as as a team because we had become from you know one one man show which was me one woman show to a, a small team and that I could somehow lead that transition and I led it in a very natural way was a moment where again this happened that someone from the outside saw it and interpreted it in a certain way that I hadn't thought of but then when it happened I thought okay that that's fair and I actually like the idea of me keeping some type of control on the vision and what was being done of course I felt reassured because I felt a bit threatened by another person arriving so I felt reassured of the fact that I could now keep that type of role of having the vision and holding it and then bringing someone along with me uh, on that vision so that's maybe one episode that comes to mind which is very small very concrete but it's one of these you know, the moments that you have in life where we're like, oh, okay, interesting. That's what it is about. You said, when I was in high school, I didn't think I wanted to be prime minister. And now you're like, why not? Yeah, why not? I'm comfortable actually even articulating that. How was that shift? How did it happen? It happened over a long time. It happened, I think, on two fronts. One front is really understanding the world we live in not on the books, not in a classroom, but understanding it by living in a lot of these countries and understanding what the issues are on, on our lives, on everyday's life and seeing it firsthand and understanding how much we need really good qualified people to focus on that. A lot of my friends, be it from, from my studies in France, even be it from my studies in, in Boston, go to the private sector, uh, th their big drive is, you know, how can I make money or how can I make something that is really going to, you know, establish my profile as a leader in terms of money and capacity to create profit and capacity to grow. And once I think you see the reality on the ground for so many people that live in conditions which are I don't know, a million times different from the conditions we can live in, right? I live in or you live in, or any of us uh, probably listening to this podcast live in. You understand that you really need very good people actually looking at impact and actually looking at making a difference, which is not profit, but which is saving lives, taking decisions and policies that can actually help the people that are usually left behind. And I think having this realization was one part of my then drive to to be the person that can have this impact and that has this clear purpose and it's a purpose that also if I shift a little bit my career and my jobs it's always a purpose that drives me so that would be one half of this realization the other half I think is more related to myself and my character and my confidence in myself I've always been confident right I, I didn't see myself as a leader I didn't have that ambition but I've always been very comfortable with myself with who I was with being who I was with not following trends but really being myself and that's something I think I owe to my parents that gave me that helped me build this self-confidence in a very positive way and it's something that by occupying leadership roles and by interacting with other leaders other top-level executives, I wouldn't necessarily call them leaders, right? Then we can get to the concept of leadership. But with other executives, other managers, and by being around those tables, often with people that were double my age or a lot older, at least, and had a lot more experience, I actually realized, yes, okay, they have more experience. They've lived things that I haven't lived, and it will take me time to get there. But I actually do have 
the skill set, I do have character traits, I do have the capacity to hold the vision, but then to also implement it and run with it that they have and that is required to lead organizations. So it was a self-realization of by looking at others of what are the key skills that people at the top level have. And by then looking at myself and thinking, okay, I don't want to sound, I don't know, super snobby and hyper confident, but I have them. I have them and I'm delivering and I can do it. And I can do it even if I'm half their age. And that, of course, helped me build a lot of confidence also because I received that type of feedback. I always receive feedback of saying, okay, wow, you're half our age, but probably your questions that you're asking at this high level meeting with the UN were among the best questions we've heard. And you're really questioning how we're doing things and how we can do them better. And seeing that I was having that impact and I was building that credibility for myself, no matter the age and no matter also my gender, I was in the middle so it wasn't the easiest of things is something that gave me that self-confidence to think that I can be the one that makes a difference so there is the difference and the impact and then there is the confidence that you can make a difference and why not in that case why not think big because finally it's not about me and my profile it's really about how we need to fix the world we live in. And I think we need more people that have a certain set of values and certain set of skills uh, to bring them to the table and not you know, shift to, to profit-focused or very self-interest-focused uh, type of politics or jobs. You're talking about long-term purpose and value. Did you always think of your work as something that were like mission-driven, change the world? Or was there like a specific moment where like, no, this is really what I want to do? It's an interesting question because I think it's part of my character. I don't know how to explain it, but when I was a little kid, I would, and in my small village, which is literally a small medieval village, in, within the walls of the medieval village, it's 500 people, so it's tiny. I was renowned with the mayors of the village because I would go and protest about whatever was important for me, right? Maybe the swing was broken or the scooters were driving too fast and it was dangerous for kids. But I would always show up at their offices and storm in the door and go and tell them everything that was wrong and that I wanted them to fix. And I think I was, I had partly, I don't know, a character that stands up for things that is not afraid to speak up. I think it was very much also encouraged through my education uh, by my parents, maybe also by the fact that I have a very international background. So I knew that things could be different from how they were in my village, right? I knew because I would travel that you could have amazing children facilities and that the fact that my village didn't have any wasn't necessarily the case and how it should be. So I knew how it could be different and I would not shy away from asking for things to be different. And so I've always had that. It's not a purpose for something specific. I think it's a purpose for changing what I personally don't like or I don't think it's the right way of doing things. And that's something that has always driven me. And again, it, it didn't translate for me in my mind into, into leadership, into being the head of big things, but that that spirit or that instinct of speaking up and of somehow asking for the change and then becoming myself the person that would fix things was something that has always been with me. So I'm someone that can't 
shut up or I can't stand by if I see something happening in the street that I don't like. I'm typically the person that is going to intervene and to say something or to defend someone or to, to shout at someone else to make things right, at least from my perspective. So I think this is something that then has translated into my job and that I've come to understand that it's what gives me the energy to do my job is feeling that it's a job where I can do what for me is very natural, right? See things, see problems, find solutions, be the one that brings the solution and speak up for those that maybe can't speak up or not listen to. And, and I think it will evolve with time, right? Before it was humanitarian work, now I'm more into policy, who knows in the future. So I think the actual content or the actual way of bringing change can evolve because there are many different ways in which we can change things. But the spirit behind it is really something I carry with me since I'm, I don't know, three, four years old. And it's just, I don't know, it's just part of me somehow. And I've refined it over time. And I've been encouraged to follow that gut and follow that instinct. So it's definitely not my merit. It's also the merit of people around me that allowed me to to trust that feeling and, and speak up. But it's something, yeah, that I've always had and that I think is also what makes each of us unique and different. It's something that we have and that we follow and that allows us then to somehow emerge because it's it's within us, because it's what makes us different. It's what makes us true to ourselves. As you started getting into these positions of leadership, as you think about how, you know, in the practical sort of day-to-day -day work and the connections with your team, you want to manage people, what are some of the traits of the leader that you aspire to be? It's a very good question, and it has changed over time. The first years of my career, being an effective manager was all I thought about. So getting the job done and having people as efficient as I could get them to get the job done and with a very clear direction. It was that, that was really what leadership was to me and what being a leader meant, like delivering on specific results that can have the impact you're hoping to have and bring the team within with that, in that direction. The past years, I've definitely shifted my thinking. I think simply because I had time to reflect during my master's, I had time to observe, uh, to take leadership classes, to maybe, you know, question also myself. And now I would say that the leader I aspire to be is, is a leader which has this capacity to hold together the vision of the impact you want to have, but then also go at the micro level to run things and, and make it happen. Was that the only change or is there more? So my concept of leadership has definitely changed because I had time probably to, I took time to think through my career, to think through my life, to think through the impact I wanted to have and to think through the person I wanted to be, what I wanted to stand for. And I would say that now for me, being a leader is, yes, having this capacity to have a vision about the impact you want to have but also the, the micro-level uh, skills to follow up and to get the job done uh, and, and the capacity to zoom in and zoom out between these two levels. That's something that the leader should have. And I, I like knowing that I have that and that I bring that to the team and I bring that to the table. But for me now, being a leader is much more about, yes, having that aspect, but while doing it, how are you going to bring yourself to the table in a way that shows 
also emotions that shows your purpose that inspires others and how are you going to lift others up in this process right it's not anymore about myself being effective and getting the results down done is about myself being effective and getting the results done while understanding and paying much more attention to team dynamics, to the people within the team, to the people we're working with and bringing them and empowering them actually to be the ones that bring the change. So typically before, if there was something that needed to be done and I wanted it to be done my way, I would have just done it myself and not maybe involve specific people or specific things because it's a process that often takes quicker right to bring people on board and in my new vision of leadership I would definitely avoid doing that now again I would definitely always try to bring or create the right environment around me for others to carry the work and for me to somehow help them achieve their objectives, be it the personal objectives within their jobs, be it the impact that they want to have from the position they're in. But I see it more as a facilitator that has this vision, that has this guidance, that has this capacity to zoom in when it's needed, but that is there to facilitate an ecosystem to work together and to deliver uh, on personal, professional and, and collective outcomes. What you talked about here is a very common challenge that high-performing people have when they move very quickly in the readership responsibilities. And then they realize that they need to have to work with a very diverse team and, and by diverse in terms of skill set, aspiration, level of commitment, and they have to adjust their leadership style. I'm wondering if you're comfortable, if there was a moment where maybe there was a setback or something that sort of brought this to light to you and how you navigated that? Yes, I would actually say I'm now in a moment, uh, which is very interesting of setback and of navigating that. In the sense that I took on this position, uh, maybe yeah, eight, eight months ago. And it's a position which carries a lot, right? It has a lot of staff, it has a lot of impact, that work that is already being done. But it's, I'm at the holding level of three different entities. And the three different entities, each of them have a CEO, each of them have the working culture, each of them have the work that they're doing. Of course, each of them has their way of doing things and is attached to that. And my role as the managing director of the holding is to create this 3-0 vision across the organizations and to build a vision those that goes beyond the single organizations that hopefully mobilizes a lot of private sector partner philanthropy of governments to work together towards this 3-0 world, right? So it's a bit of a change maker job in the sense you need to change how the organizations you're working with have been working so far to create way more collaboration, way more capacity to understand problems and to solve them, not by positioning themselves as an organization, but by creating an ecosystem that wants to fix it and collaborating with others to do it. And this means that it's a job where my position is is a change maker towards the outside, but also towards the inside. And I am a change maker that definitely has a specific speed. As you were saying, I'm someone that works very fast, that moves very fast, uh, that wants to see results at a certain pace, that likes things done in a certain way. And I realize how I'm in this process where it's partly a 
M&A, it's partly like a merger and acquisition within the holding because it's different organizations that have different souls, different CEOs that needs to come out now, come below or under a common vision where there is a lot of internal dynamics of positioning of senior directors of you know team dynamics which are always there especially when you have such a huge entity with a lot of things at stake and the fact that I am very outspoken with also the top management I am very honest I say what I think I call out things that I think are problematic it also creates a little bit that backlash which I think is part of any change it's a phase of when you try and bring change, there is a phase of backlash. But it's a difficult phase because it's a phase where, of course, you question yourself. Uh, often you are a bit alone when you're alone or in a few people that see how things need to change, but you see also people resisting to it and you manage to see the whole dynamic. But most people don't see the whole dynamic. Most people are part of one battlefield within this <laughs> overarching battle. And it's, it, it can feel lonely. Yeah, it creates doubts in yourself about the change you want to bring, about yourself being the good person, maybe to bring this change at the right pace. Or maybe, you know, maybe I'm just, I just go too quick compared to the change that they want to bring. Maybe I need to come in in a few years once they're more ready, right? So there are a lot of these questions that go through in my mind. And it's not easy. It's not easy, but I think that knowing and keeping an eye on the end goal, knowing that there is a willingness to go through this change. That's the reason they recruited me. They know me from before. I worked with them before. So the let's say the top level, the presidents of the foundation know me very well. It's because they want this change, but then they a bit stand in their way because for them, this change is a, is a big shift, even for them that have been used for 30 years to work in a different way. Um, and so, so it means slowing up, slowing down a little bit compared to my own pace. It means becoming more patient, uh, becoming better at listening, becoming better at reading these little dynamics happening within the organization and becoming more strategic in managing them. And it's um, difficult because sometimes it takes energy and time away from doing the actual job. And it, so it puts a lot of energy and time into people's dynamics, into managing fears, into managing this backlash. But finally, it's part of any change. And so it's it's an interesting phase because I'm definitely going through it. It's not easy. It's way more difficult than other phases of my career. I think, though, it's a responsibility that comes as you move up and as you become a real leader, where that people follow, that people also threaten by, because they see you have this capacity of vision and of changing things. And that also creates backlash. And we need to deal with it. If somebody listening is in a similar role to where you are right now and they're trying to drive change and they're facing similar challenges, what are two or three pieces of advice on things that they could do in a practical way? First of all, to ask always ourselves why we're doing it and if it still gives us energy. Because if at some point it's something that takes so much energy out of us that we are no longer constructive and try to bring change, but we become part of the problem, then it's good to realize that maybe we're no longer the right people to do it. So I think having this check with yourself, asking yourself that question, okay, can I still bring positive energy to it? Can I still be constructive in bringing this change? 
is important to do as an accountability to ourselves and to make sure that we keep up that energy of wanting to bring change, but bringing it not, not no matter what, bringing it if we manage to bring it where we want to do it, why we want to do it, and in the direction that we want to see. So that would be a question that I, I ask myself often when I start my, not every day, but you know, I check in from time to time and I would definitely recommend others to think about that because I have a lot of friends that I feel are in situations where they don't get energy anymore and they get stuck into the position and into the situation and they also become part of the backlash or part of the problem or part of what stops change from happening. So let's be honest with ourselves. If we're in that situation, that's perfectly fine. We can bring change somewhere else, but maybe that's no longer the right setting, right? So that's one question I would ask myself regularly. A second thing I think we can do very concretely is to be strategic when we come to our desks or when we are in meetings and to start thinking more strategically about the macro level of the change we want to see and strategically define where we want to intervene and what fights we want to fight. I'm, for example, someone that tends to fight all fights. And I everything that I see that is not going okay, I will intervene or I will try and do something and I don't know. And, and it's tiring, but also at some point you lose a bit of leverage because you're a bit everywhere and you're constantly, I don't know, fighting different fights that are maybe all important, but then maybe not all as important. And I think having this capacity of taking a step back and seeing these broader organizational dynamics and seeing, okay, this backlash is not because of me. It's not because of you as a person. It's actually because it's a system resisting to and you are the agent of change. So it's a system resisting to that change and it's just part of it. And having that understanding and being able to say, okay, how can I deblock it, right? Rather than saying, okay, now I'm going to complain and say this is not possible. Like, how can I actually be even more strategic and see that organizational dynamic and decide what are the key leverage points, what are the key leverage people that can help me deblock it, that can be an ally in deblocking it. And so I think that's an interesting thing to do. And at least for someone like me, maybe someone that has more my type of character that maybe is always outspoken, is always, I don't know, always has something to share, <laughs> to also think that sometimes you hold back, not for others, but for yourself. You hold back on saying something or on fighting a specific fight, not because others ask you to do it or because you want to, I don't know, not show your emotions or not show that you care about something, but you do it for you to become more effective. And understanding that will make you a more effective change maker. That's great. Since we're talking about advice and ideas for people, you mentioned you have a book coming out and I don't want to give away the book. Maybe you'll come back when it's out and we can have a deeper conversation on the book. But think about a couple of like really helpful points from your book that you want to sort of preview for people? So the book is coming out in a few months, end of November with Wiley, which is a big American publisher. So it will be published in the US, in the UK. It will be a global release. And it's about leadership and it's about how women are redefining what leadership looks and acts like. And it's not at all a book for women. It's a book for everyone. 
It's just trying to bring to the table the voices of women, which are often not there, on how is it that we can lead differently. There's so many insights. So it's, it's a book that features very known women uh, and how they've been dealing with their personal leadership story, their failures, and how they've overcome them, how they had to somehow play by the rules of the game when getting to these top-level positions, but then how they've tried to at least change part of the rules of the game and how they would like leadership to be redefined. One thing that I would like people to think of is this, is personally, we all focus a lot on getting to the decision-making table or getting to that position, we don't think that often, and that's why I love listening to some of your podcast episodes, of how is it that you change the rules of the game? How is it that you change what leadership means once you've got to that position? Because often we get to that position because we play by the rules of the game, and we make those rules our own. But I don't think all the rules are good rules. I think there's a lot of shortcomings in how we see leadership today and how we manage organizations today and how we manage teams and how we fix global challenges. And we need to be more of a change maker, I would say, once we get to those positions. Otherwise, we're just replicating the rules. So one question I would really want people to start thinking about is like, how am I, if I'm in a top level position, actually redefining what leadership means? Am I doing that or not? Or if you're not there yet and you're on your way, but how would you want to redefine it? And also be aware, and that's something that emerges from the book, is that leadership is not being the CEO. Like, we can lead from so many different levels. You can lead as an intern, right? That maybe sees a problem and tries to find a solution or hears different dynamics and tries to <laughs> change what is happening. You can lead from wherever you are, right? It's it's an attitude. It's not the job title you're given. Like I've met a lot of people with amazing job titles that I wouldn't, wouldn't consider leaders. And I've met, of course, many people, people with junior job titles that I find inspiring and they could be leaders, right? And I hope they will be leaders one day. But so really thinking how from the position you're in, you can already start being someone that promotes a different way of being together, working together or thinking about the impact rather than only the profit and of changing uh, the companies and the organizations we work for. There's so many different insights that these women share Maybe just as a, as a little spoiler, each chapter has a title of one trait that is very important to them. And the traits that have emerged are empathy, are curiosity, the importance of being curious, optimism, the importance of thinking you can fix things and working in that direction, consistency, how you show up, because there are many things you can't control, right? In our lives, I mean, now I'm sitting in Germany, it's summer, it's raining all the time like I have no control unfortunately over that but I can control how I show up and how I make the most out of my day um, so consistency is another trait that came out authenticity is something that came out very deeply because finally it's what for each of these women being the true selves and figuring out what they were passionate about is what made them excel it's not working necessarily super hard of course they worked hard but that's not what really made the difference so authenticity is also something that it's interesting to reflect how are you uh, dealing with it uh, as a leader or as someone that would like to be perceived or become uh, a leader within your lifetime. And an interesting concept also that came out is integrity. So what are the principles that you go by and how do you stick to them, the, the honesty behind your leadership? It's 
circularity. Leadership not as hierarchy, but as something circular. And that's actually Gloria Steinem. I can, you can find already the names online, so I can say it. It's Gloria Steinem that brings that circularity concept, which is very fascinating. And the last one is freedom. So why finally are we leading? For what? And one of the answers is for, for everybody to have the freedom to be themselves, to be the change they want to see, and, and to really give this freedom to people of being happy and finding the well-being and expressing themselves and not stepping on each other's toes as we often do in today's world. That's great. And it's an excellent point to stop this part of the conversation. If people want to find you online, where can they go? So, I mean, connect with me on LinkedIn, on Instagram. I like to post about my life. It's not very professional on Instagram, but if you're curious uh, of how it looks like, my type of life, uh, please do connect. And you can find the book already available for pre-order. So on Amazon or Wiley's website, any website where you find the book, the title is Leading Our Way, How Women Are Redefining Leadership. So that's another way of finding and, and exploring more, at least my thinking, but most of all the thinking of quite impressive women that have, have way more experience than I do uh, in how we need to rethink uh, leadership. Now we're going to move to the personal part of the podcast. First question, what is a hobby or a passion that is not work-related that you have and how has it maybe informed the way you work? I had a very strong passion for music. I grew up playing the flute. But I, I played the flute like four days per week after school. And I was part at some point of the orchestra of the opera theater of Rome when I was a teenager. And so I played at, at a high level. And I stopped the moment I left Italy. So I was young. I was 20, 21. And I stopped because it was something that for me was always so natural and so important also to express my emotions in a different way to, I don't know, just, it, it was very, it's very personal for me to play. And I stopped because I didn't play for six months, simply because I didn't find the right professor at the right level uh, where I was living. And then I got scared that if I would touch the flute again, it was, I wouldn't be at the same level. I wouldn't be as perfect and as uh, uh, competent as I was. And I practically hardly ever touched the flute again. And I lost a big, a big means for me of expression uh, by losing that. Uh, and I actually re, re took it out of the cupboard a few weeks ago and tried again. And I was very impressed that after 15 years, I can actually still play the pieces and then really see how, in, how it's rooted in me, how music is rooted in me and how the movements of my hands and everything is still there. But music is definitely something that I've always had and that it wasn't maybe playing the flute, but I'm not very good at singing, but I love singing along. I love listening to music. I just got married last month, actually, and it was all about music. So it's really something that for me is a bit of a world where I de develop and listen and discover my emotions in a different way and express my emotions in a different way. And then the second thing that for me is very important is to be and take the time to go out in nature. So I grew up on this in this village that I talked about before, which is by a lake. There's a national park around it. So I really was someone that lived outside most of the time. And I realized when I'm, I mean, I've been in cities now for so many years, but I really miss the water. I really miss nature. And it's really moments that I 
need to take for myself to kind of recenter and refocus and I'm hyperactive and it's the only moments where I actually manage to calm down um, and so for me just walking hiking and nature is another big I wouldn't even say hobby for me it's just part of my life and it has to be part of my life to rebalance my hyperactive traveling jet setting type of manager type of job that I have and it's something that that allows me a calmness in everything else I do uh, that I otherwise wouldn't have. Now, my favorite question of the podcast, what is the business expression or jargon or cliche that drives you crazy? I have one, which I'm going to say in Italian because we are, we, we are both from Italy and then we're going to try and find a translation. It's sei una femminuccia or non fare la femminuccia, which is, don't behave like a girl and that's something that I remember hearing hearing it a lot when I was a little girl and I remember my mom which is a very strong ambitious uh, woman getting super pissed with whoever said it and me thinking oh my god she's always so overreacting and I'm ashamed of my mom but actually now I'm the same because it's really something that it's used to say you know if you're whining or if you're crying or if you're not being strong enough it always you tell you say it both to, to mainly to boys you say ah oh, don't be like don't behave like a girl like don't be so weak don't be so whiny don't be so this don't be so that which is all negative and that really triggers me because girls are the opposite and we socialize them and we socialize them to be in a way and we socialize boys to be in a way. Uh, but it's an expression that really, really triggers me when I still hear it today. I agree. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you, if you go the body route, you can share a recipe or a drink that you love. If you choose the soul route, uh, a book piece of music, movie, piece of art, theater, something that uh, right now inspires you and nourishes you? I will choose, maybe as a good Italian, I will choose the food route. I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I have a very sweet tooth, so I was going to pick one of the many delicious sweets we have in Italy. But now that you're asking the question, I'll actually pick the recipe that I have to say to my Italian grandmother, which is no longer with us. I mean, she would have been 102, but she died a few years ago. She made it to 99. And she would always cook for us uh, pasta ragù, which is, yeah, bolognese pasta, spaghetti bolognese, I think. That's how we usually call them abroad. And she would cook the ragù as we do in Italy for days in a row, at least a day, otherwise it's not good enough. So it was like a whole process with the whole house just smelling for days in a row of the preparation of ragu, of the different meats she would put in, of the lorry leaves she would go and pick up in the garden, of the tomato sauce that she would make from scratch. And and it was like this whole immersion and for, for hours and hours in a row, seeing this ragu slowly cooking and getting ready to, to you know, taste. It was the best ragu I've always I've ever had. I don't have the recipe. Unfortunately, we, we are not great sometimes, right, at writing down things that would actually keep memory alive. Um, so I don't have the recipe that my grandma used. But whenever I eat pasta ragu, I think of her. She was an amazing woman. She was, she came from a very poor family. 
She didn't even go to Scuola Media, to middle school, uh, let alone high school or anything else. And for me, she was really the proof that that it's not necessarily education that, I don't know, makes you get somewhere, be somehow a certain type of person. She had, she was the most kind and principled and generous person. Also, she didn't have much. Uh, she was a hairdresser. She loved her job and she was super generous and super kind. And she was really a reference point for anyone in the family. She was always welcoming. And I think she taught me a lot on, on how to be grounded. Uh, and each time I eat pasta ragu, I'm reminded of her and a bit of her values, her way of life and her way of really taking your time to cook, to prepare things and then sharing them with everyone around the table. Uh, to create memories. So that would be my food for soul. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Gaia. Thank you for having me. It was great meeting you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. If you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stick around because after the credits, I am going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Please follow the podcast on your favorite social platforms. The handle on Twitter and Instagram is at AL4EDP with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, recorded, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitars and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song from Susan Cattaneo. It's a song about driving change recorded with 30 other women musicians, which is why it is billed as Susan Cattaneo and the Lucy Stone Singers. It's called Sisters of a Different Skin. Enjoy. This story isn't his story. It's her story. Yeah.
take what they believe in.